Cliff Nestroff is with me this week. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. What a delight. Um, so let's, first of all, you wanted to talk about Dick Davey. Yeah. Which Dick I'm very Davey. happy that it's one of those things that maybe a lot of our audience will not even know anything Nobody about. Nobody knows Dick Davey. Did you Google Dick Davey before? Uh... Yeah, a little bit, but I didn't get to read up that much. I just listened to what I was saying. Did you find any information not when much. you Googled Dick Davey? Other than other stuff than that you've written. Other than, yeah. <laughs> other than some basketball coach also named Dick Davey. Oh, yes, right. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe something that I wrote. It's funny because I was going to Google Dick Davey just to refresh my memory. And mm-hmm. I, I did and realized that I was just reading myself. I uh-huh. wrote one little mini article a long time ago. There's no additional information. This guy, Dick Davey, put out two great comedy records in mm-hmm. the 60s and then vanished from the face of the earth. That's so strange. There's no information on the internet whether he's alive mm-hmm. or dead or what happened to him after like the 60s. Do we know where he's from? Uh, well, he was from, I believe, New York or Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. But if you listen to the comedy record, he does this, like, Cracker Barrel Southerner accent. Mm-hmm. He talks like he's from Alabama. Mm-hmm. And he sets up his act as having been from the South. I just got back from where I'm from, the South. And he mm-hmm. speaks in this, yeah. this drawl. Um, but I think he was from Pennsylvania or New York. He was like a... That's, uh, that's weird. I he, wouldn't have guessed that. He was one of many guys who was a folk singer first mm-hmm. turned comedian. That yeah. was not uncommon back then. Sure. Um, guys who like would be doing the folk clubs, but in between songs would introduce the songs and get laughs and slowly but surely would weed out the music and Mm -hmm. get more and more laughs. That's what happened with the Smothers Brothers. They were originally a straight Mm -hmm. folk act. Billy Connolly did that Uh, to some degree, right? Billy Connolly. There's a lot of people. I'm trying to think who else. Alan Arkin, uh, Marshall Marshall Brickman, who co-wrote Annie Hall and Manhattan and ghost wrote Woody Allen's stand-up act. That's how they got to know each other. He was opening for Woody or vice versa. Mm Mm-hmm. But again, he was like the, the the voice or the mouthpiece for the folk trio. He was the mm-hmm. one that was good at talking, this guy Marshall Brickman. Okay. And again, learned that he was funny as a folk singer by talking to people and became a comedy writer and eventually co-wrote Annie Hall and all these other things and stopped doing folk music. Yeah. Um, so Dick Davey was the same thing. He was a folk guy in, uh, I don't know if it was the Tamament Resort or the Poconos, but that sort of region where the Pennsylvania and New York border has resort towns mm-hmm. and resorts that are not the Catskills, but right. are like the Catskills, sure. a little bit hipper, a little bit more progressive. And Dick Davey came out of that in the late 50s, early 60s as a folk singer. Mm-hmm. Very progressive guy. Most of the folk musicians were like sure. communists or socialists, mm-hmm. and Dick Davey was one of those. And then if we listen to the comedy records, they're both very political. Mm-hmm. It's him talking about the civil rights era, yeah. him kind of playing the fool, the white guy. Right. For a, uh, a black audience or for a progressive audience. Because one of those was recorded at the Apollo, correct? Right. Which is crazy. Right. Uh, Dick Davey, Live at the Apollo, which is an excellent record. It yeah. holds up. It's yeah. full of strong material, mm-hmm. which is weird because we don't know who he is. And usually, I'm sure on your show, mm-hmm. when you play a really obscure comedy record, mm-hmm. it's usually really obscure and the guy's really unfunny. Yeah. Most of the time, yeah. right? Yeah, the, the the episode we did with Jeff Abraham, like we right. picked some random ones out of the group and most of them were garbage. And everybody was horrible. Yeah. Uh, so the, the comedy records that are great, that hold up, whether it's a Jackie Mason comedy mm-hmm. record from the 60s or Woody Allen, they're, they're famous for a reason. For sure. Uh, Dick Davies is an exception. He's one yeah. of the guys who's almost at that level, um, but nobody knows who he is. Yeah. And both of those records are excellent. And yes, one of them is recorded at the Apollo. Mm-hmm. He was the first... Stand-up comedian, white stand-up comedian to headline the Apollo since it became the Apollo. Yeah. I think in 1934 is when it 
reopened as an all-black venue, the okay. Apollo. Before okay. that, despite its address in Harlem, it was known as an all a whites-only venue. Really? Okay. Um, which is not uncommon in, in America in certain neighborhoods. For sure. Of color, especially in those days, white people go, we need a venue of our own so we don't have to... <laughs> right. Go to the black neighborhood and then and, and be around black people, you know? <laughs> yeah. In Vancouver, they had the same thing. In Chinatown, there was a diner called the White Spot. Wow. And it was a whites-only diner. But wow. in Chinatown, because if they somebody mm. worked near Chinatown, wanted something to eat, and didn't want to have to... Mm-hmm. Wow. You know. But it still exists, right? Just it's under... Does, it's still called the White Spot, correct? Is it, does that, I, I hear it still exists, but oh. it's just its own thing now. Yeah. It's, yeah. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, conscious, I couldn't in good, good conscience go there. Yeah, I don't know... <sighs> Yeah, well, it was called the White Spot. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not getting it wrong. There is yeah. a chain of restaurants there called the White Spot that is no longer has that mandate. I'm oh, okay. not sure. Yeah, I would hope so. For sh- I'm not for <laughs> certain sure that they are the same. Oh, Though it is a weird coincidence. Sure. Both would be a Vancouver diner. Right, right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but the Apollo was a whites-only venue up till 1934 in Harlem. So back then, white comedians did play it. Mm-hmm. And then throughout the war years, during World War II, a lot of white people like Bob Hope and Bing Crosby would host fundraisers at the Apollo. Mm-hmm. So they did. So there were some white performers that played the Apollo. Mm-hmm. But there was no stand-up comic who was white who headlined the Apollo mm-hmm. between all that time once, once it became the black venue. Until this guy, Dick Davey. Yeah. There were a few other white comedians. This guy, Don Sherman, who opened for Dinah Washington at the Apollo. Mm-hmm. And there were black comedians, of course, that headlined the Apollo, like Moms Mabley and uh-huh. Pigmeat Markham. But Dick Davey, the reason he was the first white guy to headline the Apollo, basically, if we listen to the record, is that he did really interesting progressive material about the race situation, right. as yeah. they referred to it back then. Yeah. Civil rights era stuff. And he kind of played the dumb cracker barrel, but the mm-hmm. joke was on him. Yeah. And all the jokes had this strong, smart, progressive point of view. Yeah. Um, whereas a lot of the white comedians of that era, even if they were sympathetic to the civil rights movement, the jokes were usually still kind of condescending. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, like Jerry Lewis, uh, uh, there's an episode of Merv Griffin from 1965 with Richard Pryor, young Richard Pryor. Uh-huh. And Jerry Lewis, Richard Pryor's complaining about something, and Jerry Lewis is like, Oh, so you want to march? You oh. want to march? Oh, you know, and it's like this kind of wow. reference to black people's civil rights marches. Wow. You know? That's the style of humor that most white comedians yeah. were doing if they were referring to the civil rights struggle in any way. Yeah. yeah. And not that Jerry Lewis was uh, this unsympathetic. He, he sure. wasn't. But that was just the era where people just weren't that hip or yeah. enlightened. Yeah. Dick I, Davey was much more savvy, hip. And that's why he kind of succeeded and black people really took to him. Yeah. He did black clubs intentionally before the Apollo. He would play Watts yeah. just to uh, gain experience and see what kind of reaction he got. And he destroyed. Yeah. They loved him. So. Right. I mean, well, that's the other thing, too, is in terms of language uh, language choice and obviously specific angles that he's picking for his jokes, you can tell that mm-hmm. these have been vetted. These mm-hmm. have been... You know, he's not a white guy pretending to know what black people think. He's right. obviously felt this out for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And it's that's why it's so strong. But it's also like a few notches away, and it could become preachy. Right. You know, and that's the other thing that I found interesting, too, because even though he's playing this character, it's so close where he could just be saying, he could right. just be preaching. Right. It could be like a Margaret Cho, mm-hmm. a break thing. Yes, 100%. 
Whereas, like you said, I think that character gives him some leverage. It's interesting that he does this character. Because mm-hmm. you listen to it, he's got a voice like this. He kind of talks in a drawl. Mm-hmm. I was down south. I saw Martin Luther King. Let me tell you a thing about Martin Luther King. I don't. I'm just. <laughs> this is not actual material. But that's what he sounds <laughs> yeah. like. And it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Emo Phillips in the sense that the material is strong enough that he doesn't have to do this voice yes and you're kind that's of wondering true. why is he doing this voice and when mm-hmm. i first heard those records i just assumed that was his real voice yeah then when i learned more about him he's uh-huh. from upstate new york <laughs> he's a, a ivy league educated folk singer <laughs> talking like this drawling hillbilly and i had no idea until you told me I, I i was i it was under the impression maybe the voice was meant to be a quote-unquote black voice maybe it was meant to be a relatable thing at first so i wasn't sure what was going on there so that's why I wasn't. it's an interesting premise because he I wonder if he was intentionally making it more difficult for himself to be presented as, like, a white redneck on stage and have the audience expect one thing and then his jokes go the other way. Right, warm up to him a bit. Uh, Or if the audience would have been more hostile had he gone up there as a white Ivy League, upper state New York, would that have been more condescending to a black audience for this guy to be trying to relate to black people when he's you know, right. in a different class strata, let alone mm-hmm. race. So maybe this was more of a relatable thing somehow that he was a working class cracker from the South yeah. talking about uh, the civil rights struggle in predominantly in the South. Yeah. I don't know. I've, I've never tracked him down to to right. ever ask him. Oh, that's upsetting. Uh, because uh, you're, you're the kind of person who does this kind of work. I mean, you've interviewed everybody. Yeah. We just say that. You've interviewed so many... Yeah, I've tracked down every obscure guy for sure. Mm-hmm. Norm MacDonald, I'm not, not name-dropping, but I am name-dropping. Yes, of course. Norm MacDonald <laughs> said uh, something flattering uh, about me a couple months ago where he said, uh, I like Cliff Nesteroff because he tracks down the guys who didn't quite make it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And Dick Davies is one of those guys that didn't quite make it. What yeah. Norm doesn't realize is I tracked down the guys who didn't quite make it because the guys who made it don't want to talk to me. Of course. Because they course. don't have time for yeah, a schlub yeah. like me. But it's nice to, <laughs> to be uh, complimented as if that were my man. No, of course, yeah. But Dick Davey is the kind of guy I would normally have tracked down of and course. interviewed at length. And I've talked to most of his contemporaries. Okay. And most people don't remember him. They only remember those records. Nobody knows what happened to him. Nobody. Nobody. And right now, the Apollo Theater takes great pleasure in presenting a young man that... Uh, Seems to be the shyest guy we ever had on stage at the Apollo Theater. We picked him up from the picket lines outside. He's a great demonstrator. That's one thing I know about him. From the hills of Arkansas, the Arkansas fellow traveler, Big Davy. I used to say hi y'all, it's just a way of greeting in Arkansas, but up here I found out I say hi y'all is a way to a beating. <laughs> Even little kids pounding on me because of the way I talk. Some big fellas. I asked a fella outside one time about a week ago, I asked him how I get home. He said, you're a long way from home now, Whitey. Give me a punch. A fella just said that right back over here, a little bit scared. No, it was over there, I think it was. Ain't that where I come out from? He said, go on out there, Whitey. They either gonna love you or lynch you. 
But uh, everybody been real polite to me around here. Keep calling me Mr. Charlie. <laughs> and to have such an historical moment mm. at the Apollo is mm. so weird. And I just wonder... Well, in your experience, has he influenced anybody heavily or at all? Or is it just thing somebody you discovered and you're like, well, fuck. Well, <laughs> uh, I don't know that he influenced anybody. Those, those records are, are not rare, but they're mm-hmm. not common. Sure. They're on Columbia Records, a mm-hmm. major label. I know I've seen them once or twice, yeah, but not... They're, they're very good. You know, they weren't bestsellers. Mm-hmm. Uh, most comedy records weren't bestsellers. Sure. They sold okay, mm-hmm. other than the giants like Cosby and Jonathan Winters and... Alan Sherman, stuff like that. But most of those comedy records during the comedy record craze went out to the market and, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't cause huge waves. And right. the Dick Davey, uh, I think those records did do okay. Yeah. Uh, there's a book that you should read, that everybody should read, that does talk about Dick Davey. The book is from 1975. It's okay. called The Last Laugh by this oh, guy, yeah. Phil Berger. And at one point, in, it was the only book about comedy. In the 70s, about stand-up comedy. Yeah. There had been books, you know, about the silent film clowns, <laughs> the great screen comedy teams, mm-hmm. but there'd never been a book just about nightclub stand-up. Mm-hmm. And this book in 1975, The Last Laugh, was the first, and talked about Lenny Bruce, talked about, for the first time in any book, talked about Lord Buckley. Really? Talked mm-hmm. about uh, Jack Roy, who was Rodney Dangerfield before he changed his mm-hmm. name. So it has all those stories, and it's really interesting. Um, and it also talks about Dick Davey, mm-hmm. and it's really the only stuff that's ever been written about Dick Davey, and this guy did interview him and talk to him <clears throat> about why he didn't do stand-up anymore. Okay. And he said that around 1968, the time that that last comedy record came out, I think it's called You're Far Away From Home, Whitey, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and it's a funny record, it's recorded in Watts, um, around that same time... Uh, Dick Gregory was was doing really well, mm-hmm. you know, and he did a similar point of view. But Dick Gregory was a black comic yeah. talking about the civil rights struggle. Uh, and when Martin Luther King was assassinated, mm-hmm. Dick Davey said that the tone of his audiences completely changed. Okay. There was a new level of hostility, no matter how sympathetic or progressive his point of view was, there mm-hmm. was a new level of hostility towards a white comic performing for a black audience talking about those issues. Sure. And he said it became way harder. Mm-hmm. And people would say to him, who were sympathetic to his point of view, that why are you performing here instead of a black comic? Yeah. And he said it made it really tough for him. Yeah. And he said there's already Dick Gregory. There doesn't need to be a white Dick Gregory. Right. Right. Which, and he came to that conclusion himself, and he stepped away from stand-up and retired. See, and it, now that you say that, it does make perfect sense. And I had wondered if it was something to that effect, because it's... Again, like you say, you could, like I was saying, it could borderline on being preachy. Like you say, it could also borderline on being condescending. Yeah. Um, because making the assumption that I have to do the work because I'm a white dude is it's it's good that you're doing it. And if that's not your perspective, great. But it can come across like, well, I have to fix this for right, you, right. and that's really hard. I'm a white liberal who understands the situation. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. But then to step back is that's a strong decision, especially if you do good work. Yeah, and, and it's a noble thing i think yeah, i guess i think so um who's to say maybe dick davy had he kept doing stand-up for another 10 years would have turned into dennis miller he would have yeah. turned into you never know jerry rubin going from the <laughs> hippie activist into the wall street reaganite you know, right for all we know so maybe it's a good thing that yeah. he stopped all he was ahead <sighs> but both of those records are really good you're far away from home whitey and uh, live at the apollo are, are, are stronger than dirt is what the name of the lp that's recorded at the apollo is called mm-hmm. 
And they're both really good. I remember being really surprised by Stronger Than Dirt when I bought it because I didn't know what it was. I yeah. thought it was maybe music because he's in this white okay. suit on the cover. He looks like Al Green sort of in this all white <laughs> suit and he's holding a sword. Is that how you discovered it? Did you saw it? Yeah, okay. I went. I bought it at this place called Frank's Vinyl Museum mm -hmm. in Toronto, which went out of business a few years ago. Mm. But when I moved to Toronto in 1998... I was going to school a few blocks away from this place, Frank's Vinyl Museum, which apparently had been there for like 40 years, Okay. but it was going out of business. Mm. So everything was 50% off, and it was massive. It wasn't as big as Amoeba Records here, yeah. but the main floor was as big as the main floor of Amoeba. It was just vinyl. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a hipster place. It was more like low-key, and it was more a warehouse and like old men kind of shop there, old old men record collectors, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Um, and when they were going out of business, what they did, they had this their new arrival section. Every week, they would put a new 500 records in the new arrival section that were being stored in the basement oh, because wow. they were going out of business. Yeah. So they had all this dead stock. I remember walking in there one afternoon, and they had 30 sealed copies of the Evil Knievel record. What the hell? Because they were all in the basement Amazing. from when they originally came out in 1975. Holy shit. And they were, you know, a dollar each of or course. whatever. So I, I would buy records there all the time. Mm -hmm. 50, it was cheap to begin with. 50% off, most of the records were two fifty mm. or a dollar. Mm. And then their last week in business, I walked in there, and the kid behind the counter said, just so you know, man, it was like Saturday night, 7 p.m., there was nobody in there. He goes, uh -huh. just so you know, man, just an hour ago, we started our everything in the store is a dollar sale, except for everything that's 50 cents. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, and I'd already been in there a bunch of times and bought records, and I knew where the section was where the prices never fluctuated. Mm -hmm. Even though everything was cheap, there was still a section where things were like $40 sure. and $50, like yeah. some things uh -huh. and i said uh i said everything's a dollar except for that one section he goes no and that section's a dollar now too and i was like, oh wow. boy i didn't have a car at the time but i went i knew where everything was already like instinctually yeah, yeah, it was yeah. like being on lsd and the subconscious guided me i was just like bam, 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 bam. and I had piles and piles of records and Whoa. i had no way to carry them home and then i had to take a cab home come back another cab back, <laughs> another shit. cab back, like three or four cab rides of records <laughs> And it was well worth it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But at the time, that's where I got the Dick Davey record. Mm -hmm. That's when I really started collecting comedy records because they had a section of a comedy section with all the weird stuff, mm -hmm. adults only comedy records mm -hmm. that go far beyond the typical Rusty yeah. Warren Bell Bar. They had all these weird ones, you know. Uh, Dave, this guy Dave Starr, you ever seen this record? I, uh, maybe S T A R R, and he's holding uh, a big chicken bone on the cover. Yes. And he's wearing a bib. Uh huh. And it's called the. Uh, the the nearer the bone the sweeter the meat and it's Jesus all like Christ. sex jokes Just, and it's like oh uh, boy and he's got a voice like this real deep you know and he's <laughs> telling his jokes and it's recorded in front of like a, a legionnaire's stag dinner <laughs> oh, holy yeah, shit that kind of stuff for so, the farting contest albums that are out the there the reputation contest sake, yeah. how many are those yeah there's a few of those too many yeah, yeah. have you heard them have you listened to uh, I had, like, the Crepitation Contest yeah. on Laugh Records. Uh -huh. And that same store, Frank's Vinyl Museum, had all these sealed Laugh Records uh -huh. LPs for a dollar. Mm -hmm. But that's where I bought the Dick Davey record, yeah. Stronger Than Dirt. I think it was 50 cents. And was expecting a terrible comedy record yeah. when I put the needle down at home. And was pleasantly surprised that there were some incredibly strong jokes on it. Truly funny stuff. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's dated sure. because it's about the civil rights struggle. But yeah. so Dick Gregory's dated. But if you know your history and have context for it, I think it's really funny. Still, Absolutely, it really holds up. Yeah, and again, it's in general trying to make that kind of comedy is noble in and of itself, even if it sucks. You know, I mean, at the very least, trying to do something. But not only trying to do something, but being that funny is hard. 
Yeah, I mean, it took took balls mm-hmm. to. Uh, I'm sure most white comedians, for whatever reason, even if they're not racist, <laughs> <laughs> would have like trepidation about headlining the Apollo, yeah. a historic all black theater. It's mm-hmm. a notorious theater for being hard on black comics on its amateur night, let alone, you know, a, a white comic. So I can only imagine. Uh, in the late 60s at the height of yeah. tensions and riots and all of that uh, to pull that off is is remarkable. I feel like I, I should try and re-research Dick Davey a little mm-hmm. bit. My, resor- my resources and abilities are stronger now than when I first wrote about him, which was, I don't even know, okay. 2006 or something. Okay, okay, sure. But he still hasn't, uh, he still hasn't surfaced. And other than that book, The Last Laugh, I don't know much that's written about him. I do know that he and Woody Allen were contemporaries mm-hmm. in uh, eastern Pennsylvania in one of those mountain resorts in the late 50s, and they did a lot of shows okay. together. Okay. And in that book, The Last Laugh by Phil Berger, he talks about what he remembers about Woody Allen at that time. So mm-hmm. he was addicted to uh, spearmint gum, and he was always <laughs> chewing Wrigley's nonstop, and it annoyed Strange. him. <laughs> um but yeah, but other than that, Dick Davey has never surfaced that I know of in the 70s, 80s, 90s. He never did television. Yeah. He never did movies. Wow. I had heard a rumor that he became like a teacher. Okay. Um, so totally stepped away. God, like that's just so weird. Yeah, to me. maybe Dick Davey is not his birth name. Sure. You know, maybe going by a different name. Right. But uh, anybody who does Google Dick Davey is often led back to the thing I wrote. So every now and then I get an email or a shout out about it, but it's not about them knowing where he is. Right. Sometimes it's them people asking me if I Of course, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, uh, um, but yeah, I really, I, I think those, they're two of the most unsung comedy records of the of the comedy record craze, the two Dick Davey LPs. Do you have, uh, is one of them stronger to you? I'm just curious. I think, they're both, I think they're both good. The one stronger than Dirt that I owned is the one that I remember the best, that I've sure. heard the most, and I just remember it being really good. Mm-hmm. And then around the time I wrote that article, I downloaded uh, You're a Long Way From Home, Whitey. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember them both being good. You know, brother up there doing all that yelling? Reverend Martin Luther King t- teach me I should love everybody, but that gets a little difficult sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Reverend King... He don't know about nonviolence up north. It's a little different than the south. Up here, nonviolence is when the garbage cans you throw down on the police don't have no broken beer bottle. I know that the 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 second one, you're a long way from home, was recorded at a club in Watts. I think called the California Club, an okay. all black nightclub. Interesting. Okay. And then the the other one's the Apollo. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it'd be interesting for me to to re-listen to them to. To see if he has a different style or approach. The Apollo is a vast theater. It yeah. seats something like fifteen hundred people or more. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it's very—it's a very different animal than performing for just a nightclub of drunks where there's like a hundred people. Right, it's completely different. Right, but it would—I wish there was more Dick Davy out there. Mm-hmm. There must be. There must be yeah. some random television appearance somewhere. Right, you think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or even. Well, I don't know about radio, but maybe there's got to be something sitting out. But I guess it's all been mostly destroyed. But yes, but as far as discography, though, that is for sure. Those are for sure. Those are, his yeah, only two. That's true. Yeah. Jesus, that's rough. 
like now now you've got me like now there's a part of my brain that's entirely occupied with how do we find this man you know like i, I can't but think you know that, his you know? story is going to be fascinating because even yes. the guys who didn't do anything as historic as headline the apollo mm-hmm. I mean, even if they're just bombing in weird little nightclubs in the 60s have interesting mm-hmm. stories yeah know? um they'll when you when you fuse comedy with like political activism in that era it's always interesting sure because you're in the thick of history mm-hmm. like real history important yeah. history like yeah. this place and time that will never be recreated in my book that i have coming out in the fall i have a section about the late 60s uh-huh. and it's for me the most interesting because i'm talking to guys who walked out on stage of the tonight show while they're high on lsd mm-hmm. and talking about how they're panel segment went with Johnny Carson while they were staring at Ed McMahon's chest as it melted, you know? And it's like, <laughs> what could be more interesting than that? It's yeah. so compelling to me because it could have only ever happened mm-hmm. in that era. Yeah. Where it wasn't even like a news story or a big thing. You can mm-hmm. just say, yeah, I'm on acid and then walk out there and do your set. Right. It was, it was like not totally bizarre or out of line it was mm-hmm. somewhat common with a certain contingent of the uh, of the population yeah but dick davy belongs to that 60s i can't know, tell how era. old he is by listening to it either i mean if he is a contemporary woody allen i'm guessing then he's in his f- 40s at this point is that in right? the 60s yeah 30s or I would 40s? Say younger yeah he's, he's i would say he's probably in his early 30s okay I'm, right. guess, I'm guessing as well yeah i get you know i think the voice fooled me and that's why in my brain he still seems a bit yeah. older um yeah, that's interesting to me too. Then to step, I mean, you've got to, if if you are in your thirties, it's I guess it's okay to step away, but it's just it's so much work. It's so much work to get to that point to yeah, be that good. Yeah, to, and to have step away from it all. Mm-hmm. I always find it interesting to think to theorize what people's acts would have been like today had they not quit. Because mm-hmm. the biggest names in comedy, some of them quit stand up at their height. Mm-hmm. Albert, Albert Brooks, yeah, yeah. Woody, Woody Allen, uh-huh. uh huh, Larry David quit stand up. Uh huh. Eddie Murphy. Mm-hmm. So what would these guys' act be like in 2015 had they never quit? Because sure. if you keep doing stand-up for enough years, mm-hmm. you become a seasoned professional, you become very strong. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if you keep doing it too long and you, you just become an old man, you mm-hmm. become square, you become old hat, right. you know, you become less hip. You can still do Vegas. You know? That's, that becomes the thing, too, is I wonder which of them would have just totally sold out. Well, Woody Allen's last stand-up gig was Las Vegas. And the okay. last two years of his stand-up career were Las Vegas. That's crazy. It is weird. There's a there's a great TV special. I don't think it's online, but I watched it at uh, UCLA where they have a big TV archive. Mm-hmm. And it's a George Plimpton special uh-huh. called Did You Hear the One About? And George Plimpton used to do these TV specials and these essays after he did his most famous essay called Paper Tiger. Yeah. You know that mm-hmm. story where he trains with the, the Detroit Lions or yep. whatever and does one professional NFL game even yes. though he has no athletic ability uh-huh. and writes about it. Because that was so popular, he continued to do that throughout his career here and there at George Plimpton. Oh, that's so he right, did, and he tried stand-up. So right? he did this one where he yes. tried stand-up called Did You Hear the One About? And in the TV special, he goes to Steve Allen, and they sit in with their writers, and he they kind of tell him how you tell a joke. Mm-hmm. And then he goes and meets up with Buddy Hackett, and there's a scene, I can't remember who he's with, if it's with Buddy Hackett, but he's at the tail of the pup hot dog stand uh-huh. in Los Angeles, uh-huh. this giant hot dog-shaped hot dog stand. And they're talking about how you do timing and all this. And it's a, it's a cool <laughs> special. It's all red-tinted, scratchy film. Uh-huh. But there's a scene where he goes to Las Vegas to watch Woody Allen's uh, act. Okay. And the special is 70 or 71, so it's right the tail end of Woody Allen's career mm-hmm. as a stand-up comic. He's got, Woody already has long hair over his ears, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, he interviews Woody 
between shows at the Las Vegas Public Library where mm-hmm. we, Alan would hang out because uh-huh. he hated Las Vegas so he'd just go hang out at the library by himself and there's nobody <laughs> in Las Vegas is at the library but, but uh, I don't know why I'm telling you this oh but Woody, you get to see a chunk of Woody Allen's Vegas That's interesting. act yeah. right at the end of his career too they, they show about two or three minutes or so of his act and then they keep cutting to George Plimpton in the audience like laughing and applauding <laughs> of course <laughs> <laughs> But it is so interesting to think, like, what would have their acts evolved into? Mm-hmm. Would have Woody Allen turned into, like, a, uh, a stage-stalking powerhouse, you know? Yeah. Walking up and down, like, <laughs> nailing down these punchlines. What would Larry David's act have turned into? Uh-huh. Would he do a big stand-up special and then storm off in the middle of it? Having a fight, right, you know? right. Like, what could right. have happened? If one of them became strongly political and, like, Carlin, like, yeah. hard. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 exactly, because Carlin did it his whole career, and... Sure had all these evolutions and changes and shifts in tone and style decade to decade. He'd know? be notable for that even if his comedy wasn't that great, I think. You know what I mean? Like, to just change, be the yeah. Madonna of comedy I mean, for like a that, that is term. kind of the way it should be if you're doing stand-up that long. Mm-hmm. Because if you still... I, I mean, you've seen enough comedians to know. It's always sad when you see comedian you loved in 1988 mm-hmm. then you go and see him in 2008 he's doing the exact same <laughs> shtick and you're like 20 years like you'd never had one idea right not that you should be throwing out strong material but in right. 20 years you didn't come up with Something one new. Yeah. new clever thing uh-huh. and you're making references to debbie gibson <laughs> it's like really you couldn't have uh, this sounds like a specific event <laughs> it sounds like you've seen something very specific no no but no but yeah i i do know and that's which is why it is okay to step away, I guess. But it's like, again, it's it's one thing if you are that comedian. It's another thing if you are, like, a political right. comedian. Like, I don't know what would have happened if Carlin had ever stepped away. That would that just, the idea of that upsets me. Even yeah. though I don't necessarily care for his later years as much, just because I didn't listen. Right. The edge I didn't care for. Because right. I was, I was the, just the wrong age for it. But uh, if he'd have stepped away, that would be a totally different thing. I wonder if he would have stepped away had his like movie career gained traction. Right. Or if he had done a TV show that was a big success. Mm-hmm. He may have. Because he know. did so much acting work. And tried to do so much more, yeah. you know? And, like, yeah, so it's a good knew, question. Carla knew he wasn't a good actor, uh-huh. which is too bad, because it, it's funny, like, there'll be these brilliant stand-ups, and then you see them in a movie, and they're just <laughs> dreadful, and, like, it <laughs> just doesn't right. translate. Everybody wants to take comedians and put them on TV in a TV show or in movies, but yeah. it often does not mm-hmm. really work. You know, in the early 70s, when Carlin was having his, one his Grammy after mm-hmm. FMAM, or Class Clown, ABC granted him a pilot for his own late night talk show. Really? They only did one episode, but you can find the stills of it. He interviewed Shelley Winters uh-huh. and the, the writer Jimmy Breslin. Okay. And they're, you know, all dressed up in like suits. Right. It's George Carlin in his tie dyed shirt. It's <laughs> funny telling he's behind the desk with his with his like uh, his uh, sheet, you know, oh his God. questions and stuff like that. Holy shit. And it was supposed to be like an eleven thirty PM like, uh-huh. thing. But they just did the one episode as a pilot, and I never did anything with it. That's so interesting. But yeah, but who's to say if he'd been got, got that talk show, where you're doing it five nights a week, he may have quit stand-up to yeah. commit to that. You know? I, 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 yeah, I mean, it's uh, people sometimes forget that while it is an art form, while it, stability is always really, really attractive, yeah. you know, and something yeah. like that would be great yeah. for anybody. Yeah. I don't care how, like, you would still have strong opinions. You'd still be a man of strong opinions, I don't doubt. But yeah, you have to wonder if living on the road, what living on the road does to your. It's interesting because I think sometimes uh, when you do stand up, your 
concept of what you're supposed to be doing is skewed by what your contemporaries are doing. Mm-hmm. When I used to do stand-up, when I first started doing stand-up in 90, I don't do it anymore, but when I first started doing stand-up in 98, 99, mm-hmm. all the comedians I knew were going out auditioning for commercials. Sure. And I, I was like a punk rock kid. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? Why would you do that? <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. And you'd go to the show in the evening to do stand-up and people would be slapping each other on the back. I saw your commercial. Congratulations. You booked a commercial. I'm like... You guys are fucking sick degenerates. What do you, why? That why would you be proud that you're should be doing stand up and like criticizing those commercials? You shouldn't be right. fucking happy because you've sold your soul. You know, I had not even heard like a Bill Hicks routine. Oh uh, right, point. right, okay. But I had the same <laughs> anger in me about uh-huh. that. Um, and it, I, I myself started doing it because I was confused. I was like, oh, I guess that's what stand-up comedians do. They mm-hmm. do commercials. That's what stand-up is. That's funny. You tell jokes at night and you go and audition. For, but it's not. It's a survival mm-hmm. thing. It's like that's how you sustain yourself financially mm-hmm. while you're doing open mics or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it, you're, it's very, there's very few, few people who just do stand-up. Sure. Even Especially the biggest now. stand-ups, you know, for a whole career, they got to dabble in everything else—writers' mm-hmm. you know, room, or uh, or auditioning for commercials, or whatever. Right, or even doing podcasts, which is everybody's default. Even though I don't do, do stand-up, it does seem like <laughs> podcasts are a podcast to sustain yourself. Maybe <laughs> that that's that less depends. wise. Yeah, than yeah, yeah, for no, yeah, and... yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing they're showing though, they're showing all these dragons and the wizards embezzling funds, cheating on the contributions. That ain't right. All these poor folks donating their hard-earned money ain't getting a fair amount of killing for their dollar. <laughs> but the Klan ain't gonna last long. They're going out of style. They're the only ones in the country still buying whites instead of colored sheets. <laughs> the times is changing, I believe. Things is getting better for colored people. I seen a colored girl in the Playboy magazine right in the middle where you pay the 75 cent for. <laughs> she flap up on top and on the bottom, flap a little bit, don't wear a whole lot. <laughs> white Citizens Council been trying to get equal time, get a white lady be Aunt Jemima for a month. <laughs> It's really hard to talk about a guy that, that nobody knows anything about. Well, what did you discover besi- beyond... I mean, there's only that one interview and that one book. So That's what right. did... They, is there anything about his early life or anything about... Or just about his choice to leave stand-up and what he was doing? It pretty did. much ends there. I should have reread it before I came. It's really okay. But The Last Laugh by Phil Berger... Now, while Dick Davey was not necessarily influential, you're asking me if he if mm-hmm. there's anybody he influenced. That book that talks about him, The sure. Last Laugh by Phil Berger, was extremely influential because mm-hmm. it was the first book about stand-up. It was the first book to kind of chronicle the struggle of stand-up, and mm-hmm. the Dick Davey section talks about that, how he was a folk singer, how he discovered he was funny in between songs, how he shed the things, how he started booking himself in these little clubs and worked his way up mm-hmm. and in that book they talk about the same thing with jack roy rodney dangerfield lord buckley how robert klein is profiled a lot in that okay. book and up to that point nobody really understood how you became a stand-up comic okay. people even today people still don't understand sure. that you have to go up on stage and be terrible for a few years yeah. before you develop an act and become good and you have to face public humiliation and not care about what that audience that you're torturing is thinking. <laughs> mm-hmm. You have to just go, I'm never going to see these people again. Sure. 
maybe not in Los Angeles, right. you know, but if you start anywhere else, <laughs> uh-huh. these people will never see you again. It's not going to affect your career adversely if you're terrible. Mm-hmm. And this book, The Last Laugh by Phil Berger, was the first time to lay that down as a blueprint. Yeah. And because of that, a lot of people who were interested in comedy who read that book became stand-ups for the first time, including mm-hmm. Jerry Seinfeld, mm-hmm. uh, including, well, a number of people who came to prominence during the comedy boom in the 80s. Yeah. Credit this book, The Last Laugh, is the reason they got into stand-up. And in a small way, this book is responsible in a small way for the comedy club boom mm-hmm. that happened. It influenced a lot of people. If you talk to comedians of a certain age of that Paul Reiser-esque mm-hmm. generation, yeah, the Paul, the like you've heard of the greatest generation. <laughs> right. I'm talking about the Paul, Paul Reiser generation. generation. <laughs> <laughs> they were <laughs> influenced by the last laugh of Phil Berger, yeah, in a big, big way. I should have reread it before I came, but so. It's interesting that it is the book that profiles Dick Davies mm-hmm. as well. And unfortunately, the guy that wrote the book died like in the 80s. Sure. Or maybe he wasn't. The, he died of cancer, so there's no way to track down. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure those notes are irrelevant anyways. His phone <laughs> number from 1975 is probably not in <laughs> probably service. Probably not so good. But... Yeah. Wow. And I, and again, when you talk about that, I do wonder what, at that time, what makes somebody so interested in the process of stand-up comedy. But I guess it could be. I mean, I remember growing up and never thinking about the idea that, you always hear people say this, but I didn't know you could do comedy for a living. Right. Turns out you can't. But, like, you know, but still, like, it didn't know that that was a thing. So you don't think about the process of how to get there. You just see them at the end. You just see them at their their height. Right. Or you see them on Caroline's Comedy Hour and never hear them again. But, like, which I remember a lot of that as a kid. But you don't know how somebody got there. Right. So, um... As far as your own writing, though, like what what started you on the path of writing so much, like delving so much into comedy? Uh, I was influenced by comedy records because I was a record collector mm-hmm. as a teenager. So I picked up, uh, you know, the same stuff that everybody picks up in a thrift store when they find comedy records, the ones that are the most common. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you see a Bill Cosby record, you know who Bill Cosby is. Yeah. You see a Jonathan Winters record, you know who Jonathan Winters is. But doesn't matter how old you are, but especially when I was 19, 20, mm-hmm. you don't know who Rusty Warren is mm-hmm. or Von Meter is mm-hmm. or Woody Woodbury is, yep. but they're in every thrift store, Absolutely, every junk store, every flea market, every antique store, every yes. record store every has records by yeah. Woody Woodbury, mm-hmm. Rusty Warren, mm-hmm. and Von Meter. Mm-hmm. And you're like, who are they? Right. I've never seen Rusty <laughs> Warren on TV. I've never yeah. seen Woody Woodbury in a movie. I've never seen... Uh, 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 Von Meter anywhere but in a thrift store on the mm-hmm. First Family record so mm-hmm. there's got to be a story there Yeah. so I became curious and intrigued I was like apparently these people were the biggest thing of all time at yes. one point yeah. and somehow they've become the biggest nothings of all time right. yeah. since then and it's like the the weirdness of celebrity that mm-hmm. somebody could be a million seller not that long ago right and we have never heard of them. Mm-hmm. So that intrigued me. And I was kind of on the cusp of the internet not quite yet being the internet. Sure. Where you couldn't necessarily Google everything right. yet. You had to Netscape search uh-huh. a lot. And mm-hmm. it did not necessarily produce the information you were looking for. Yeah. Um, but with the first person I interviewed, the first person I became very curious about was Woody Woodbury. Mm-hmm. Who you probably have a record or two Oh, by. yeah, yeah. Um, these records that would say not suitable for radio play on the back adults mm-hmm. only and you listen to it and he's just talking about <laughs> her quivering quim and uh, and you Christ. know yeah her, her bazooms 
<laughs> there's nothing offensive whatsoever, and there's nothing really that funny. Mm-hmm. And it's funny mm-hmm. when you listen to those enough of those party records, you hear the same jokes come up again For and sure. again, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I became intrigued by that, and the record label he was on was called Stereo Oddities, mm-hmm. with one big O in the middle, like uh-huh. one word, Stereo Oddities. And I loved that, mm-hmm. and I found it interesting that he was the only person on the label that right. put out nothing else. Well, they did. I learned later they did put out a couple other things, but very little. Okay. And I stole the name of that uh, record label for the name of my first radio show okay. that I did when I was a boy. I was 16 years old, and uh-huh. I had my own radio show. Awesome. In Canada, at this co-op station that I helped found, I co-founded with five other people, this experimental radio station. It was a pirate station for a month. Then we got a temporary license from the CRTC, which mm-hmm. in Canada is the equivalent of the FCC. Uh-huh. Um, got a temporary license to broadcast this station for a month. Mm-hmm. Then the CRTC does a a thing where you file a request and they investigate if there's enough community uh, support mm-hmm. to justify a license for a community station. Interesting. Six months later, we did another experimental thing. I guess it lasted three months this time. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, a year later, we're granted an actual permanent license to be a legitimate radio station. Okay. By that time, I had left, but that station still exists to this day. That's it's awesome. like a legitimate radio station, Radio CJLY. Uh, back then, it didn't have a name. There was no call uh-huh. letters. Right. But anyways, I was 16, and during the first two experimental runs, I had my own radio show, and I would play records I found in thrift stores, and I called the show Stereo Oddities, because mm-hmm. I played weird records. That's awesome. I'd never played Woody Woodbury, but I stole sure. the name of... Of his record label. So because of that, I was always intrigued by this guy, Woody Woodbury. Mm-hmm. So then I decided, well, as the internet became more of a mechanism for research and for information, I managed to track down Woody Woodbury somehow through somebody else. They said, Here, okay. here's his email or something, and I emailed him, and he emailed back, and I thought, wow, he must be a thousand years old. That's so weird. Um, but I phoned him without having researched anything. I yeah. phoned him, but I did record it with like a big old Sony tape recorder that somebody let me a jack that you could plug into your landline. Uh-huh. And uh, I was on the phone with him, and I interviewed him. And I had not done any research because I didn't know anything about him. I didn't yeah. know how to research. Yeah. But I had a record collection that had been accumulated over the course of a few years, and I had all these old comedy records of guys I knew nothing about. So I interviewed him, but I said, who is Harvey Stone? I have this record by this guy, Harvey Stone. He goes, oh, Harvey! Worst nose job in the history of the business! And he starts telling me this story about Harvey Stone. And I said, who's this guy? I got this record by Hal March and Tom Andrea. Oh, a hilarious team! Started in the army! He knew the story of all these guys. He had had worked with all of them. So he gave me this this sort of thumbnail education, yeah. And uh, then I transcribed the interview mm-hmm. and turned and put it in the zine that I was doing. I cut and paste, photocopied zine. This mm-hmm. interview with Woody Woodbury and had little pictures of all the records as the things we were talking about. Oh, uh-huh. so that was the first thing I ever did. But I got into it. That's when I got into like old comedians and their yeah. stories and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it all came out of collecting uh, records, appropriately enough. Oh yeah. Howdy. I was a little scared just now standing back there. I guess I looked that way, fella. Said, go on out there, Whitey. They're going to love you. (laughs) Fella said, go on, Whitey. You clean? (laughs) Black power coming to get me. (laughs) That's a big hit, that black power, ain't it? 
Yeah. I feel real happy with Stogie Carmichael, biggest one since Stardust. Yeah. <laughs> Black power and white power working together, all right. Yeah. I just hope it work out good enough it amounts to some green power after a while. Them fellas back there call me Whitey because they admire my new white suit. It's what you call white on white, you know? Uh, in white. <laughs> I wish I'd keep this conk straight. I wish I'd... Well, there's some white folks got nappy hair too, you know? Uh, because it's one of those things too where that's kind of the purpose of this podcast it's not just for my audience to learn but for me because mm. every once in a while there's some jackass I've never heard of good or bad I don't care I, right. but I want to know their story yeah you know I mean like this is a little more famous it's a little more sure ubiquitous. well the Bickersons yeah. everything has a story yeah you're pointing at a Bickersons record by Don Amici and Francis Langford mm-hmm. and there was a radio show and they put out these two this is the sequel there's mm-hmm. two comedy records but this one of the interesting stories about the Bickersons other than the fact that it's Don Amici, who was a great mm-hmm. 30s Fox contract player and was in Trading Places with uh, Eddie yes. Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> uh-huh. um, Jackie Gleason, The Honeymooners, mm-hmm. which is about a bickering couple, mm-hmm. apparently was stolen from this, The Bickersons. That I didn't know. Yeah, that's this is the story of The Bickersons. This is the good, juicy uh-huh, story. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, this guy, Philip Rapp, R-A-P-P, who created The Bickersons, mm-hmm. when he saw The Honeymooners for the first time in like 1952, Two or 53 or 54 was livid he goes this is my fucking sketch they're just doing my sketch yeah. they're just screaming at each other it's just, it's my sketch uh-huh. the whole thing is my sketch so he sued Jackie Gleason and he sh- sued CBS but at that point the honeymooners had already clicked it was the biggest thing on TV yeah. and CBS had endlessly deep pockets to defend themselves of course they kept Philip Rapp in court for years, they finally settled and paid Philip Rapp a settlement for plagiarism, mm-hmm. but only three years after the the honeymooners had been off the air. Um, apparently, uh, uh, this guy Lou L E W Lou Parker, mm-hmm. I could be wrong, Lou something L E W, a friend of Jackie Gleason's, a burlesque comic, uh-huh. had been doing a road company of the Bickersons in like dinner theaters. Um, and because Philip Rapp, who wrote the Bickersons, also wrote versions of it as a play, mm-hmm. uh, which it lends itself very well because it's sure. just two people kind of arguing. It's a, yeah. like a proto odd, uh, proto Neil Simon kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And Lou Parker, if that's his name, it's either Lou Parker or Lou Kelly. I think Lou Parker uh, invited Jackie Gleason to one of the uh, the shows, and Gleason said, "I love that. We I could use that for my show. I'm gonna take that." Uh-huh. And he did. Holy shit. Um, but yeah, that's the Bickersons. It's the original Honeymooners. It ripped it off. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Honeymooners ripped it off and got all the credit. And this guy, Philip Rapp, who created the Bickersons, never got a residual for it. Other than that payoff, but right. he was bitter for the rest of it. Of life. course he was. Well, why yeah. wouldn't you be? Yeah. Wow. You know, speaking of Jackie Gleason, too, I'm always on the lookout. Did he ever, because I know he released all those fucking music right. records. Did he right. ever produce a comedy album by anybody? Because I've been uh, looking. I don't know if he produced a comedy album by anybody. Yeah. He did produce comedy shows sure. of others uh-huh. um he did have under contract briefly uh a comedy team uh peter marshall and tommy noonan uh-huh. and peter marshall is best known as the host of hollywood squares oh, yeah. for like yeah, okay. three decades mm-hmm. the guy with the big pearly teeth and the mm-hmm. glasses 
Um, he was a, a, a boy singer, straight man in a comedy team in the mm-hmm. late 40s, early 50s with this guy, Tommy Noonan. Tommy Noonan was sort of like a beach party type movie actor. Uh, I don't know if he, he... He dated some famous girl singer at the time. I forget who. Uh-huh. But Jackie Gleason produced a pilot for them. Okay. Loved them. Peter Marshall told me that Jackie Gleason adored them but when he, he, one night he brought all these people to see them in a nightclub and Jackie Gleason sat right in the front row and was smoking cigars and was like applauding and like mm. trying to be real supportive. Mm. And then like 10 minutes into their act, because Gleason was drunk, he passed out in his food face down and he was in the front row and Gleason's face was in spaghetti. And they were trying to do their act for Jackie Gleason as a showcase. But, oh um, but he did sign them and have them under contract, produced a pilot for them, I forget mm. what it's called. Um... But other than those uh, lounge music mm-hmm. that a lot of the time Gleason just lent his name to right, and right. had somebody else do all of it That's and then retain the publishing rights so he got all the money of whenever God. a 45 sold or it was played on the radio. Yeah. I don't know. I can't think of a comedy record that he did. Yeah. Art Carney, mm-hmm. the sidekick, Norton on The Honeymooners, put out a lot of records, mostly mm-hmm. novelty songs and children's records. Although he was great in audio, because Art Carney was a uh, radio actor, and mm-hmm. hilarious. Right. He was a brilliant impressionist, which you never really saw I'm on the honeymoon. I haven't seen his albums anywhere. That kind of blows me away that I haven't seen he his albums. He did a record called Men at Work, which is all like, uh, I'm a cab driver. Let me tell you about driving a cab in New York City. <laughs> oh, the traffic, the traffic, the honking horns, the traffic. Oh and then God. the next one is like, I work in a sewer. I'm a sewer worker. Let me tell you about it. Oh, it stinks down here, but a check's a check. You know, that kind yeah, of thing. It's hilarious. Um, oh, my God. And he put out a bunch of children's records where he's like reading Peter and Peter and the Rabbit. Okay, okay. Or, sure. Um, but Art Carney on radio is hilarious. Yeah. He's, on, he's a supporting player on a lot of different shows where he just steals the show. Sure. And you're like, who is that guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's Art Carney. Somebody told me, an old comedian who uh, used to work with Art Carney in nightclubs in the late 40s, told me that Art Carney did the funniest impression of President uh, Roosevelt, Mm -hmm. FDR, trying to take a shit. That was the impression that Art (laughs) Carney did of the paraplegic president grunting and lifting up one cheek, but in that FDR voice with the mouth crooked and the the long cigarette holder coming out of the mouth. Holy shit. In nightclubs in the 40s, he was doing that impression. Art Carney. The yeah. shit that was going on behind the scenes of what we think is such a, what we take as such a staid and yeah. clean era. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's amazing. Yeah, people were people back then, too. Of course. Too. They, still, just... they still swore. They still had sex. Mm-hmm. They still did. But we still get so, I, I still get so pleased when I, when, I, when I see something that's excessively clean, like a cover of an album or something that's just like so delightful. And, but so but you always on. know that the person behind it is of like course. the fucking most corrupted. Absolutely. Terrible, vicious, salacious yeah. human being. I mean, Jackie Gleason was a bit of a thug, apparently. I mean, you know, that's, that's he was you know? he was drunk and mean, <laughs> yeah, and 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 arrogant, and and the wealthiest, the highest paid comedian of his era was yeah. Jackie Gleason. Yeah, uh, George Schlatter, who created uh, Laughing, who I'm friendly with, I did mm-hmm. a show with him at the Cine Family about his career a few months ago. He mm-hmm. lent us this piece of footage that is so cool. And George is still around. He still ha- retains an office on Beverly Boulevard. Awesome. Which is a museum of comedy. I a bet. museum of show business. There's framed photos everywhere. Mm-hmm. There's framed memos from censors in the 60s. Awesome. Telling him to take out the word bird because they thought it was a reference to something. You know, things like that. And all his Grammys and Emmys all lining the walls. And it's really cool. Yeah. Um, he... 
also has all copies of everything he's ever done. Stuff that's never been commercially released that he produced in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. And he hired this this little girl from El Salvador who knows everything about computers to mm-hmm. digitize everything. Oof. So I was in his office one day and he was telling us this story. Um, Albert Mazels, the cinema verite filmmaker from the 60s, mm-hmm. the guy who did Gimme Shelter, yeah. the Rolling Stones, and did Grey Gardens. That's mm-hmm. his documentary. Yeah. And salesman, a lot of great stuff. I was doing a thing at the cine family and I mentioned that to George. He goes, oh yeah, we brought Mazels... On a train ride from New York to uh, Miami to film Gleason. And I was like, wow, that sounds amazing. He uh-huh. goes, yeah, just one second. He spoke into his intercom and said, Marta, can you queue up the uh, Steve Lawrence special, The Great Gleason Express? <laughs> and uh, the little girl from El Salvador like typed it in, and we had it on his computer right there. Oh. And it is this black and white handheld camera footage when Jackie Gleason decided to move his TV show, The Jackie Gleason Show, mm-hmm. from New York to Miami Beach. They moved the entire show and crew on a train, and it was an all-night, 24-hour party of boozing (laughs) and a Dixieland band (laughs) playing. And Albert Mazels, who was like a contemporary of D.A. Pennybaker, and his film crew like chronicled the whole thing and just filmed them. And it's Gleason getting progressively drunker, you know, (laughs) and and Steve Lawrence, the singer, is hosting it. He's not really hosting it, but he's kind of like the focal point, and he's sort of casually interviewing Jackie Gleason while they drink and smoke, and he mm-hmm. goes, uh, who are your favorite comedians, uh, Jackie? And Gleason's got a cocktail glass, and there's like a girl on his lap, and he's like smoking, and he goes, Youngman slays me! <laughs> Nobody funnier than Henny Youngman! He slays me! But it's this great, like, 10-minute, <sighs> 15-minute, like, piece of film footage. Jesus. But Gleason was, like, the hedonist. Yeah, yeah. And he just said, I want to move to Miami Beach because I want to golf. And the network said okay and footed the bill. But I, he made something like, I have the statistic in my book somewhere, but he made something like $200,000 a month, a week. <laughs> something really insane for that era. Uh, oh, I don't have an index yet of my book. So. <laughs> I have the prototype of my book. Uh-huh. Somewhere uh, but yeah, Gleason, Gleason was a jerk, apparently, to his writers, although he was very loyal. The guys mm-hmm. who wrote sketches for him in 1949 were still on staff in 1969. Sure. But they took a lot of abuse. Oh, of course they did. Yeah. A lot of abuse. Gleason would come in hungover. Mm-hmm. They'd deliver the new script to him, mimeographed. He'd take one look at it, not even read it, and go, it's shit! Of course And throw it across the room and say, fix it. Uh, George Schlatter told me a story where that exact thing happened. It's shit! Fix it! They threw it across the room. There's papers everywhere. And George Lauder said, we'll work on it, Jackie, we'll work on it. Comes back the next day with the exact same script. We fixed it, I hope the changes are to your, uh, mm-hmm. oh, much better, much better. You know, <laughs> Apparently that happened all the time. He was ah. just an impossible person to work with. I try to help out in civil rights things as much as I can, because I figure white people have been running this world a long time, going to be the color folks turn soon. <laughs> yeah, and when the time comes, I just hope some of y'all remember me kindly. You know? <laughs> Let me have some whiskey privileges or something. <laughs> Maybe I get to be Ralph Bunch's slave instead of Cassius Clay, you know? Yeah. That's the truth. I go to bed at night. Every night I pray to the Lord to push these freckles closer together. I do. <laughs> you finally answer my prayer, probably that Ajax fellow come by. Psh, uh, Mess me all up again. 
But I don't think, to answer your question, I don't think Jackie Gleason ever put out what is it uh, would be a comedy record, comedy record. Right. Yeah, I think I found something where he had produced a music album by a comedy personality, if I remember correctly, and then that's why I got excited for a sec. I can't, I can't remember who it was. I might have been Goober. It might have been George Lindsay. George Lindsay had an album, and I can't remember. I have it somewhere sitting right. around. But Goober sings. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure why that exists, but actually, it, something just did come to mind that Jackie Gleason is on. I don't remember what the track is. Mm-hmm. Either Decca or Coral Records. I think they were a subsidiary in the early '50s. Put out a record called Fun Time, and they put one out called Laugh the Party. Fun mm-hmm. Time is interesting. It's a compilation of all different comedians. Mostly with music playing in the background while mm-hmm. they do their monologue. There's a Henny Youngman track. There's a good Steve Allen track called really? What is a Freem? Mm-hmm. What is a Freem? A Freem is many things to many people. And then he does this abstract, <laughs> I love it. surreal thing. Oh. But there's a Jackie Gleason track on there, as I recall. A young Jackie Gleason, like uh-huh. maybe right at the cusp of the Honeymooners, where he does like a monologue. I can't remember if it's about the army. Okay. Like about army life. It's not a Jackie Gleason record. Yeah, yeah, But I yeah. think he has a track on it that is That's like a comic awesome. monologue. Okay. Henny Youngman's on that that thing. Bob and Ray have a track on really? it. Really? This comedy team that, oddly enough, I mentioned when I was talking about Woody Woodbury called Hal March and Tom Andrea mm-hmm. also did army-related jokes. I think Myron Cohen might have a track on okay. that LP. And some other obscure that's people. Interesting. So I think Jackie Gleason actually might be on that. That's fun, cool. fun time. All right. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, all right. So, do, where? All right. Other than a record shop, is there any place where we can find Dick Davey anywhere? Uh, like, is, is there Not anything that, digital? Has anybody I don't legally so. or otherwise put it I don't online? think so. Okay. I don't think so. If if he did TV appearances, mm-hmm. and if I were a good guest, I would have just Googled that. <laughs> well, I should have too. <laughs> Bad host. But uh, if there's any television footage of him, I'm speculating it would be on a folk uh, TV mm-hmm. show like Hootenanny. Mm-hmm. Hootenanny was a TV show that was showcased different folk acts every week, yeah. broadcast from a different university around America every week back when folk music was popular on uh-huh. college campuses. They always had a comedian, and it was usually a coffeehouse comedian like Woody Allen, mm-hmm. Godfrey Cambridge, Dick Gregory... Uh, Mort Saul, people like that. Mm-hmm. So if there's a Dick Davey television spot, I would speculate it's something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't think he was doing the Dean Martin show sure. or the old school show or Ed Sullivan. Yeah, but he may have appeared on uh, Hoot and Annie. Mm-hmm. Maybe he would have done an early Merv Griffin show. Mm-hmm. Maybe. God. Mer- Merv used a lot of up and coming coffee house comics to his credit. Mm-hmm. Merv Griffin who we kind of consider a square guy mm-hmm. um, in the 60s when his show was in black and white was a hip yeah. dude he was the first person to put Richard Pryor on TV he was the Jesus. first person to put George Carlin on TV and he was the first person to put Lily Tomlin on TV Shit. and although Richard Pryor had had a TV appearance prior to Merv Griffin mm-hmm. Merv was so savvy he put all three of those people 1965 Richard Pryor George Carlin Lily Tomlin he put them under exclusivity contracts so they could Smart. only appear on his show. Smart man. But then he let them do whatever they wanted. Unlike today where your set has to be like rehearsed sure, and sure, vetted sure. by you know a, a pre-screener, a pre-interviewer, a yeah. censor, a network suit. Merv gave them complete creative freedom to do whatever they wanted. They did like a five to ten minute set and then had them all on panel and just let them improvise and talk for like an, during a 90 minute show. And uh, that's really where Richard Pryor... George Carlin and Lily Tomlin uh, entered a new echelon and earned their, their craft. Mm-hmm. Um, but that era of Merv Griffin, this black and white, chain-smoking, 
era of Merv Griffin used a lot of those village comedians, of which mm-hmm. Carlin Pryor and Tomlin were all part of. So maybe Dick Davey appeared then. He is the kind of guy who would have mm-hmm. probably been used by Merv at that point. That's but I don't know for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so if you're going to recommend uh, Dick Davey's, uh, you've already condensed it, but in a couple sentences, if you've never heard of Dick Davey, and it seems like probably you haven't, because I hadn't, really. I think, like I said, I've maybe seen one of his albums sitting around. Right. Uh, why listen? Dick Davey is as strong as the strongest comedians of the 60s that you do know. And he's by far the strongest of the comedians you don't know, mm-hmm. I would say. Those mm-hmm. record, the record, as I recall, really holds up. Yeah. Most records from the comedy, uh, from the 60s, even Bob Newhart records, don't hold up not because they're not good it's mm-hmm. because the style of comedy sure. that we're used to today has changed so much mm-hmm. that bob newhart does not seem revelatory or right. fresh or incisive and yet when he came out he was considered all of those things mm-hmm. so dick davy holds up uh it's it's very rare that a guy you've never heard of from that era is gonna speak to you in any way or make you laugh in any way yeah Usually these records are more culturally interesting than funny. And even then you have to have a established interest in cultural history to begin with. Yeah. To even want to listen to it. Maybe yeah. Dick Davies is the same thing. You do need a little bit of American historical context to get with the civil rights sure. references. But that's the same as Mort Saul or Lenny Bruce or Dick Gregory or anybody from that era. Um, but I think he's the strongest of the 60s comedians you've never heard of. Yeah. So that would be the reason I would give to listen to Dick Davey. That's as good a reason as any. Um, well, thank you for being here. Oh, number thank one. You so much. Yeah. That was a ton of fun. Um, where can people find you? What should they look out for? What's coming up? Uh, let's see what's coming up. Uh, uh, I don't know when this is going to air. The stuff that's Couple coming weeks. up will be over. By the time this airs, mm-hmm. uh, South by Southwest will probably be over, but I'm doing a show with uh, Judd Apatow uh, in, at South by Southwest this year, like an interview on stage. Just did a show at the LA uh, Alternative Comedy Festival with Fred Willard. Mm-hmm. So all the stuff I've been doing over the years, research-wise, interviewing people for research purposes, I'm now bringing to the stage as a show. It's awesome. So I did, just did this show with Fred Willard. We only talked about his career in the 1960s. Awesome. Which nobody knows about. Right. He was slated for to star in his own spinoff of Get Smart. Really? He was on the Ed Sullivan Show four times. We talked to him about uh, the weird movies he had been in. He was in a French art film called Model Shop. He was in a, uh, his first movie was a film called Teenage Mother. So there's all this history to Fred Willard that it was, and you know Fred Willard, he's hilarious sure. telling any story. So we're do, I'm doing more of that That's now. Awesome. I've been doing a bunch of shows and we'll be doing more shows in the future at the Cine Family Theater here in Los Angeles. And then this fall I have my first book coming out from Grove Press. I got the prototype with me today. It's called The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scandals, and the History of American Comedy. And it's the outgrowth of all the things I've written for WFMU over the years, but it's all new material. Mm-hmm. 200 people have been interviewed for this book. And uh, it basically gets into the stories that I find interesting, I hope other people will find interesting, that you don't know about. Like the Jackie Gleason mm-hmm. ripping off the Bickersons type of stories. Yeah. There's a lot of stories in here about people getting ripped off, mm-hmm. <laughs> people being maligned. i got a great anecdote in here about Woody Allen... Uh, getting the shit beaten out of him in London, England for stealing somebody's joke. <laughs> Woody Allen, who we consider like one of the most original sure. comic minds. Sure. Um, I'll just quickly tell this anecdote because uh. I do think it's interesting. 
Woody Allen was such a New York product in the early 60s, the Jewish cadence, mm-hmm. the, the neuros- neurotic kind of character talking about psychoanalysis. That style of comedy did not play everywhere in America. Sure. It did well in New York City. Mm-hmm. It may have done well in San Francisco. It did not do well in Des Moines. You know? <laughs> and when he went to play the Playboy Club in London, England, mm-hmm. he was bombing with that material. And according to more than one source uh, of mine... Uh, when he would be in that situation where he knew it wasn't going to fly, mm-hmm. he would do other people's material. <laughs> he oh would do the material God. of comedians Whoa. that were less funny than him uh-huh. in order to do well. Yeah. Woody Allen. <laughs> so he did that at the Playboy Club in London. He did the material of this guy, Will Jordan, who was an mm-hmm. impressionist. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is not according to Will Jordan with an ex-friend. This is an objective comedian who told me this, yeah. although he's anonymous in the book. He was hosting the show at the Playboy Club. Although I'll drop a hint, he's not anonymous in other parts of the book. Okay. Just in this an- anecdote, okay. so people can try and solve the puzzle. But Woody Allen did this other comedian's material, he did well. And then after the show in the Playboy Club, the media was interviewing him, What Brings You to London, England? It was around the time he was doing the movie, What's New Pussycat? Mm-hmm. And Woody Allen told the reporter, well, Hefner thought this other comedian who was hosting the show was so terrible, they had to bring somebody in who was funny. Uh-huh. And the guy who was hosting the show heard this and fucking <laughs> lunged at him and grabbed him and started fucking pounding on him and held him over a balcony and Ooh. said, take it back, you schmuck. Take it back or I'll fucking drop you right now. Take it back. Ooh. And he was already livid at him for stealing somebody's material. Sure. And so this was like the last straw. And apparently... Hefner closed the door. He made these reporters like take the film out of their camera because they were taking photos of this mm-hmm. like fisticuffs fight. So, oh my god, that's one of the stories that's in the Woof. book. One of many, but yeah, that's am- how far back does this go? It's- uh, this book is a history of 20th century comedy. Mm-hmm. It starts in the days of uh, vaudeville and comes up to today, which awesome. might sound overly ambitious. Oh, I think so. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Originally, the, the, my original pitch for this book was a book about comedians and the mafia because I'd mm-hmm. written a lot about that. Okay. And if you were a stand-up comic in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, or 1960s, mm-hmm. your boss, nine times out of the ten, nine times out of ten was the mob because mm-hmm. they ran the nightclubs. Rusty Warren's stories confirm a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh exactly. Exactly. Upsetting. I mean, the Copacabana in New York, Bill Miller's Riviera in Fort Lee, New Jersey... Um, Ciro's here Mm -hmm. uh, everywhere every city had a mob contingent and they controlled the nightclubs and Las Vegas was just the outgrowth of what already existed in American nightclubs most of these places had been speakeasies the mafia controlled the liquor business when prohibition ended they still had all these venues and all these booze so it was natural progression for them to become the owners of the nightclub circuit of america Mm -hmm. miami beach was the center point for a long time then the late 40s early 50s it was the first time that organized crime was being uh investigated and clamped down upon Mm -hmm. there was a senator from tennessee very famous guy named estes kefauver who opened these famous mob trials to try and expose the mob and it didn't really stop the mob. It just harassed them until they were kind of pissed off. Mm-hmm. And they picked up operations and moved to Nevada where gambling was legal and prostitution was legal. Sure. And that kind of built Las Vegas. But so my pitch was uh, originally for this book was about that. Mm-hmm. About what it is to be a comedian working for the mafia. Mm-hmm. In an era where if you were on stage and you insulted somebody in the audience for a laugh, yeah. turns out you might be insulting somebody who would kill you. Of course. Literally. Of course. Uh, for the insult. So that was my original pitch. Grove Press liked that. They asked if I could write a longer book. 
that went back further to the mm-hmm. days of vaudeville and came up more current. So yeah. all that mob stuff's in the middle still. Okay. Yeah. But I talk about vaudeville, I talk about the current day, and uh, the, the toughest trick was figuring out a way to make vaudeville comedy accessible to a modern sure. reader or interesting. Because sure, sure, even sure. I wasn't that okay. interested in the vaudeville era. But I figured out a way because uh, vaudeville comedy, it turns out, was the most sordid uh-huh. Of all the sure eras. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody was addicted to opium. Uh-huh. <laughs> Everybody was living in bedbug-ridden fucking rooming houses with prostitutes and thieves. Uh-huh. Because in those days, if you were an actor or a performer, you were considered a pariah of course, yeah. around America. You yeah. know? There's rooming houses with signs that say no actors. <laughs> uh, which an actor just meant anybody on a vaudeville stage, sure, including sure. a comedian. Yeah. So I talk a lot about that awesome. and a lot about the roots of the comedians that we would still know who were in vaudeville, mm-hmm. like W.C. Fields, the mm-hmm. Marx Brothers, uh, Jack Benny I talk a lot about, who's a little bit too old for your audience to really know much about Jack Benny, even though he was an enormous sure. star in the 20th century. But I talk about how his career started based on plagiarism as well. Interesting. Um, he... His birth name was Benny Kabelski, mm-hmm. and at the time there was a big band leader comic fiddle player named Ben Burney. Uh-huh. And when Jack Benny was starting out and couldn't get any work, he changed his name to Ben Benny so that he would hopefully get booked when people <laughs> thought he was Ben Burney. Uh-uh. And he did, and he made a lot of money getting booked accidentally. Amazing. Even though he had this shitty act until, <sighs> ben, until ben Burney sent a cease and desist order threatened mm-hmm. to sue him. So Ben Benny changed his name to Ben K. Benny. Uh-huh. Still wasn't a good enough change, so uh, the lawyers came after him again. Then he changed his name to... Uh, well, he saw this other comedian named Phil Baker, who mm-hmm. was in Ben Burney's orchestra, who also branched out, became a comic, and Ben Jack Benny loved him so much that he stole all of his material <laughs> and then started billing himself as Jack Benny, Phil Baker's brother. That's how he built him. Oh, and then we'd go on stage and just do oh, Phil Baker's oh, act. Oh. And people go, oh, he's doing the same material. Oh, but he's his brother, so it's okay. Oh, my God. So Jack Benny's whole career was founded in vaudeville on plagiarism. Mm. But yeah. he was not a stupid man. He was just earning his chops sure. in a nefarious way oh, my God. as he earned experience. Yeah. Until he finally decided that you could not sustain yourself on thievery and be dodging lawyers everywhere you mm-hmm. go. So what he did was... Uh, he hired Phil Baker's writer, this guy Al Bosberg, and paid him a bunch of money mm. to develop an act, and then he became Jack Benny. Amazing. Created his own persona, yeah. That's crazy. So that story and stuff like that is in the vaudeville section of my book, wow. which wow. it turns out I'm, I'm very proud of. I think it's going to be If it doesn't make you want to read that book, I don't. you're an idiot. That just <laughs> sounds fantastic. Well, thank uh, you very much. Uh, well, thank you for talking to me about a very Absolutely. unusual subject. And somebody that people should definitely listen to. People should go out and get your book when it's out. When does it come out? Do you know? November 3rd. November 3rd. I think it's available for pre-order this summer. Really? Okay. Awesome. People should go see any talks that you do out here in L.A. What about uh, on Twitter? Are you on Twitter? I'm on, on Twitter, Twitter. at Classic Showbiz. At Classic Showbiz. Classic Showbiz. I mm-hmm. guess everybody knows how to spell that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Easy enough. Well, Cliff, thank you for doing this. Thank you so much, Jason. This has been great. Thank you guys for listening. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. 
It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. Please visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, read our blogs, read our tweets, watch our videos, and read our books. Please subscribe on iTunes, and if you like us, give us a five-star rating and a nice review. You can find us on Facebook.com slash Comedy on Vinyl, Twitter at Comedy on Vinyl, and find everything else at ComedyOnVinyl.com. 